following message is from the 2015 IBCD Summer Institute, equipped to counsel. Welcome. Thanks for being here. This is uh, General Principles of Biblical Counseling Part 1. Tonight at 8 o'clock, we'll do uh, Part 2. I'm Tom Maxim. I'm Pastor Elder with Grace Bible Church, who oversees IBCD. And then I'm also uh, actively involved with IBCD in various capacities, including counseling on those Monday nights that you hear about. This particular class is part of the IBCD certification, they call Care and Discipleship Certification. Um, IBCD has taken the national ACBC certification, broken it up into four levels, uh, IBCD providing the first three levels, and then the last level is becoming ACBC certified. And the reason we did that is it was very few people were getting ACBC certified relative to we're wanting the whole church to be working towards this kind of uh, learning. So the idea is that uh, the care and discipleship level one would be for virtually the whole church. And then level two would be for less and level three for less depending on your calling and your interests. And then um, whoever got certified at level three, this all builds towards and counts towards the ACBC certification. So the materials you see downstairs where Marcia has a table and she's selling those materials, it's, it's to get you and uh, groups at your church, your whole church, certified and to care for people and disciple people at various levels of uh, training. Uh, so this particular class is um, General Principles of Biblical Counseling is one of the courses that are required to become Level 1 certified with IBCD. And this class counts towards ACBC certification. Uh, It'll actually take care of three of our Level 1 courses. You need 15 hours, and this will take care of three. If you come today, you know, this, this class, and then back again tonight. And then Jim Neuheiser's teaching a couple classes that are also in this Care and Discipleship track. So the idea of this is to expose you to some of the material and have uh, pique your interest to go look into it more to bring this training back to to your church. Um, It's going to feel a little bit like a fire hose coming at you of information because to be certified, you need to have sat under all this training, not just part of it. So we're going to make sure to get it all in for you. Um, Don't feel frustrated if... Uh, It's just too much information. It's going to be too much information. Um, But if you come away with understanding that there are counseling models and uh, what we're going to refer to as the uh, the eight eyes counseling model, if if you've been exposed to the eight eyes, you know a little bit more about them, and you're just able to um, talk to people about that and you understand the language and what people are talking about, um, and then I'll also tell you where you can get a lot more information on, on the eight eyes. This is a summary of the eight eyes that's been written about um, extensively. So let me, let me pray first before we begin. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for Jesus first and foremost. We thank you for sending him, pursuing us, opening our hearts to uh, who he is and what he's done, all that we have to be thankful for. We thank you for the, for the conference. We thank you for... Um, through the teaching, we see your care for us, your concern for us, your love for us. And uh, bless this workshop. May your spirit be, be at work in our hearts and in our minds. And Lord, the whole purpose is that uh, now that we know you, we want to glorify you with our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So the eight eyes, the idea of the eight eyes is to promote biblical change. So that the eyes themselves are involvement, inspiration, inventory, interpretation, instruction, inducement, implementation, and integration. And what they are, these are all elements of what takes place during a counseling session. They're a counseling model. Scripture gives us uh, a lot of what to do for people, but not so much how to do it. So Colossians 1.28, we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. So we're told what to do, but um, the, this counseling model helps you with how to do that. And in practice, these eight eyes, um, there's a flow to them, one through eight, but there's also, um, they can work uh, kind of simultaneously. You, maybe you begin with giving people hope, but you're certainly not restricted from giving hope you know, again and again and again. 
So we could look at the eight eyes like this, where people come in with bad fruit, and you engage in involvement and inspiration and inventory interpretation. You start getting to the root problem, the heart problem. And then from there, you begin to instruct and induce and implement and integrate, and there should be good fruit. And, and God is glorified. Um, and I'm going to explain uh, during this session the eyes one through four, and then tonight it'll be uh, five through eight. This information, uh, I obtained and then adapted it from a graduate course at the Master's College from Wayne Mack. So to give Wayne Mack uh, credit, he's the original author of uh, The Eight Eyes. And um, in your notes, I believe I have uh, the source of this, uh, the original source. There were seven eyes, now there's eight eyes. Um, but the complete source is in the book, Counseling, How to Counsel Biblically. And there's a hundred pages in this book on these eight eyes, if you, if you want more detail about it. So the first eye is involvement. And that involvement is to promote biblical change by establishing a change-facilitating Relationship. So involvement, another way of saying that is to build relationship with the person. And I, I believe I have in your notes a scriptural reference to the importance of relationship. And so we'll just talk about a few aspects of relationship. The first is having genuine compassion. Philippians 2, 1 and 2. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any infection and compassion make my joy complete, by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So this isn't professionalism. This is brothers and sisters. This is family caring for one another. This is loving, sympathetic, helpful relationship, not just answers. Um, and, it, and it goes beyond just words. It goes into meeting physical needs also for this person if that's uh, necessary. So there's something uh, called passport that's in Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker. And so you want to gain passport with people. You want them to answer positively about you these questions. Can I trust you as the counselor? Do you really care about me? And can you actually help me? So you need to foster a relationship of trust where they'll open up and you'll really get access to what's really going on, really the underlying uh, problems. Uh, you want to look for common interest um, with the counselee, find out about them, their personal life, their family. Um, uh, get to know them enough where you, you understand what their life is like. And then uh, think about it this way. Be person-oriented instead of uh, uh, problem-oriented. Whatever their presenting problem is, be person-oriented, not presenting problem-oriented. Um, things like, have you told your counselee that you care? Philippians 1.8, for God is my witness how I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Have you rejoiced with them, grieved with them? Um, have you been gentle? Um, if they reject your counsel, are you still loving and accepting of them? So these kind of personal things. And then to be compassionate is to be like Christ. Uh, he entered into... In the incarnation, he entered into our experience and our feelings. He became one of us, and um, he forsook his own interest. He got directly involved at a great cost to himself. So Christ had a deep love and concern for people. Matthew 9.36, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. He lived and he taught us to be like the Good Samaritan. Also, as part of involvement in a relationship, we need to show the counselee respect. <clears throat> Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor, literally outdo one another in showing honor. So one way to do that is we want to express confidence in them. We don't have all the answers, they're likely going to have part of the answers of, of the plan of how we approach all this. So we welcome their input. Um, we work together to resolve issues. And we assume the best about the counseling until we have actual evidence um, to the contrary. And part of this respect is communicating uh, uh, biblically. We want lots of good listening uh, until the problem is very, very clear. And we only want to communicate in a way that builds up. 
And then we need to give thought to nonverbal communication, our body language, our tone of voice, eye contact, a handshake, uh, a touch if it's uh, uh, with the same gender. And then uh, another way of showing respect is uh, not gossiping and maintaining biblical uh, confidentiality. Um, the number of people involved in this case should be as small as possible. Um, only those people that are involved in part of the solution um, should be should be in the know about this case. And, and I can't remember a time when someone was in the know that the counselee didn't know I was going to talk to them. I mean, very open about who's going who's to be involved. Um, Matthew 18, 15, and 16, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. So you try to keep it very, very small. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you. So it expands, but it's still... Uh, kept as small as possible so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. However, um, um, in protecting confidentiality and not gossiping, we don't want to go to the other side where we're, we think that um, confidentiality is absolute and it, there's not unconditional co- confidentiality in counseling. There's times when the, the Bible directs you to inform others, like we just read that passage. If they're unrepentant, then bring in one or two others. And there's also times when people just have the right to know. If um, someone comes to you and commits adultery and they're repentant, the spouse has a right to know. Um, if there's another spouse involved, they have a right to know. So um, we try to keep it small. Um, but it's not something that's promised as uh, it would be in the secular world to be absolutely uh, confidential. Um, another example is if um, I had a case where church leadership in a different church, far from here, um, was involved uh, immorally with a, a member of the church, and this particular pastor was, he broke it off, but he was deciding how, to, how this will be dealt with. How the, what barriers they'll put in place, how they'll deal with this. He doesn't have. He doesn't get to do that. The the rest of the church leadership gets to decide how that's how that's dealt with. So these are just examples. Another example of where there's not confidentiality is child abuse is required to be reported to um, the child welfare services, and the purpose of that is to protect the child. And often um, we can protect the child by getting them separate. Um, but it's not just to protect that child. They're equipped and um, put in place by God to protect future victims. And we, we have no authority in that area. We don't have investigative powers. That's not our role uh, for people that aren't involved in, the, in our church or in the case that we're helping with. So they, um, they do uh, do a good job most of the time in protecting children and, and preventing future victims. In California... Uh, they require an immediate contact if there's reasonable suspicion of child abuse. And then it's followed up by something written. Um, you can go online, uh, whatever county you're in, you go online and uh, you can fill in a mandated reporter form right online and submit it. And then you'll hear from them uh, later, depending on the severity of it. They've got cases like this, and um, if your case is a s- suspicious, um, but but a borderline kind of thing. It might be a while um, because of other very severe cases that are actively going on. Um, The other thing that we're mandated reporters as uh, pastors, certified counselors, that kind of thing, is uh, if the elderly are being abused um, or neglected, that sort of thing. So total confidentiality is not to be promised. It should be made clear right from the start, um, either verbally, if that's the the format uh, you're in, a very informal format, or we have people fill out forms before they come in, not, not people in our church so much, but people outside of our church that come to the counseling center, and they'll, uh, they'll give permission that we can do these kinds of things, bring in others as we think are needed, or, or they'll sign a written agreement that says they understand the confidentiality, uh, the biblical confidentiality is much different than secular. Uh, I've had a case where um, the... Uh, Counselee was very unclear, he was unclear about the confidentiality, and he confessed unrepentant adultery, ongoing adultery. And you know, I told him, "Your pastor and your wife have a right to know this." 
And because he was unclear, um, uh, you know, there was a threat of a lawsuit and that kind of thing. And that, that can be avoided um, by just being clear about the, the, um, the place of confidentiality in counseling. Okay, in, in continuing with involvement, uh, genuineness and honesty, 2 Corinthians 4.2, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So be honest about yourself. Uh, be honest about your qualifications. Uh, what I start thinking, if there's ever a temptation to not be honest about something like that, I start thinking, I'm boasting in myself. I need to boast in Christ. I need the Holy Spirit to work. I, I need to be just very honest about myself and, and, and counsel in my weakness. And so that, that helps me um, to do that. Be honest about the goals and agenda. You're representing God. You're not taking sides. You're trying to align them with God's word. Um, part of this genuineness is being transparent as uh, a fellow sinner. Not every case, not most cases, you're going to be talking about your sin. But uh, there's times when it's very helpful and very appropriate to discuss that you have a similar, a similar struggle. Um, um, be transparent about your weakness, that you don't always have it together, um, that you're totally dependent on God, or, or be transparent about your limitations, that uh, you don't have all the answers, or I made a mistake with you. Here's the mistake. Here's what we should have done. Will you forgive me? And, and let's move on. Um, I don't know how to handle this part of this, what's going on. I... I, I We've gone, we put together a plan of where we're going with this. This little part of it, I'm not sure what to do, but I'll go find out. And I'll come back to you, and I'll tell you who I talked to about it. And just be very transparent. And then um, um, pray with the counselee and pray for the counselee. So you try to open and close the sessions with prayer. In the middle of a session, if there's reason to praise God, praise God. If there's... Um, something very difficult, stop and ask God for help. And then during the week, you're praying for the counselees. I find it to be sometimes some of the hardest work in counseling is to really uh, pray the way we should and labor in prayer during the week for, the, for, for these people. There, there can be so many people to pray for, um, but that's a very important part. And then the fruit of the Spirit should be in your life. They should see love and joy and peace and gentleness and all those things. And if the fruit of the flesh rises up in you as the counselor, you need to take responsibility for it and say that was flesh, that was um, wrong, and will you forgive me? And be a, be a model to them, be an example of uh, what to do when the flesh raises its head like that. And then next, um, there's some caution for the person counseling on the topic of involvement or relationship. So first, you don't want you to be an emotional crutch to them. You want them to depend on God. Second Chronicles 24.2, Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada, the priest. Um, also, be cautious in that you're trying to relate to them so much you can say unbiblical things like, um, oh, you deserve better, and just um, trying to uh, be sympathetic and being comforting and saying things that aren't biblical. Um, and also, be careful that you don't fall into uh, sin as the counselor. Galatians 6.1, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So you could slip into an angry response and you've got to, you've got to take responsibility for that and regroup and focus on, I am here to restore this person to God. This is, this is between them and, and the Lord. Um, or whatever sin they're in, you could be provoked. You let someone talk too much about a particular topic and your, your mind, the sin in your heart, um, starts getting provoked by the same sin. Or if you're talking with someone of the opposite sex and some kind of uh, inappropriate eye contact or intimacy starts happening, you've got to be very careful about this. Um, generally, men counsel men, and men counsel couples, and women counsel women, and women counsel children. Um, 
Counseling is an authoritative, face-to-face -face ministry of the word. Um, if this is not a lesser role for women, there's more women and children in the church than there are men. Um, women have a huge role. And then women counseling women is an important thing. Um, they have greater understanding of certain specific issues for females. And, and by concentrating on women and children even, they, they gain a more specialized experience. Um, women can tell you women's issues and they can tell you what works best. Um, because they're experienced at it. They're doing it over and over again. So the specialization can be very helpful. And also, it can be a much emotionally safer for the female counselee, and it allows for touches and hugs and that kind of um, relationship. And then, in God's wisdom, he has widely divided up the counseling load of the church. Um, I can't tell you how many times I'm counseling somebody and one of the IBCD female counselors is counseling women and children and there's waiting lists of women and children to be counseled and I'm so grateful that God has divided this labor up and that the mature ladies in, at IBCD in our church are ministering to these women and to, um, to their children. Um, a man can counsel a woman. Um, uh, there's times when that's needed and appropriate like a pastor. Um, but it's not wise to do so alone. Um, there can be temptation on either side of the, of the table there, and there also can be false accusation. Um, so it's a practice that just shouldn't happen. I think I have in your notes uh, a title of an article by Jim Neuheiser called The Tenderness Trap from the Journal of Biblical Counseling. Um, he addressed that um, uh, years ago, you see, in 1995, and it's still true today. Um, Preferably, um, if a man is counseling a woman, the man's wife will be with him, the one providing assistance. Um, it, you, it, it's not, once in a while I'll, I'll counsel a female with an uh, IBCD female counselor or Grace Bible Church, older, uh, more mature woman, but I wouldn't do it like for months. I wouldn't do it for a week, long-term counseling. I, I would do it, you know, they need a man in there for this session, so I'm in there doing it, and it's okay. So it's not legalistic that you know you can never do it, but you just have to use wisdom um, anytime that you do it. Um, you could have you could say, well, what about a window or an open door? Th those things help, and they probably prevent uh, physical sin, but they don't prevent an emotional intimacy from from happening. Um, and a practice of a lot of us is that if, let's say, I get a call from a female from the church or a female counselee from IBCD or, or an email, let's say I get a call, I will, I will walk from my office into my living room where my wife is and I'll take the call. And she'll know immediately what I'm counseling. It must be a female that I'm in the room. Or if that's not possible, as soon as possible, I tell her, Here's who called. Here's the gist of the call. Um, we're very, very open about that. If I'm emailing a female, I CC my wife. Um, that's just if you want me to be ministering to you, my wife's going to be. She's not going to be part of all of it. I try to keep my wife from some of the from the burden of that. Um, but if it's uh, something that creates a thing where there's a you know communication alone, um, that's a practice. That's a, a way of implementing wisdom that a lot of us. A lot of us do, but that we do that even with um, a non-counseling situation. Every time I email a female in the church, I CC my wife, and I see females in our church e emailing me, CC their husband. You know, it's just it's just uh, you have to figure out wisdom um, to not have to uh, bother with that kind of trouble in any way. Okay, the second I is inspiration. And in your notes, it says, we're going to promote biblical change by inspiring or influencing the counselee to develop and sustain an attitude and feeling of hope. So the key word for inspiration is hope. And you see in your notes the references to the importance of hope there, the scriptural references. So first of all, Jesus and the gospel are the basis of hope. Do people that you talk to hope in other things? That's the basic problem, is ultimate hope being put in other things. Paul tells Timothy in uh, 1 Timothy 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and Christ Jesus, who is our hope. Jesus knows everything. He's got a plan. He cares. And he's 
acting on your behalf. This is a hope in something that can never fail. Um, it would be irrational to put your hope in temporal things and not lose hope or have fear because these things can be gone or if they never go away, you're always afraid they will go away. There's only one thing that will not, one person, one, one um, that will not forsake you and that's uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then people are motivated to change with hope. Often when people come into our counseling center and they, they write down what their issues are, they'll say, this is our last hope. And what they mean is, if you don't give me some kind of hope, I'm done trying. I'm walking out of here. Um, so what we try to do is we look for quick victories um, to try to build some hope early on, uh, maybe solve a smaller, smaller problem before we get to weeks or months of dealing with a larger problem. Maybe there's some suffering going on and we can help with that in a, in a more uh, expedient way. And so dealing with the smaller problems and the current suffering, um, it's, a, it's a place to connect with the counselee and move into more um, uh, serious problems. And then um, part of hope is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. So what this means is, first, that these temptations have been common since the beginning of time. And it means if we turn to God, he will provide a way of escape from the temptation. Okay, um, And primarily that's by believing and applying the gospel to the situation. That's the primary means. That's the means that will always be helpful. And then also by remembering we never have to sin. Sometimes when we accept the trial, we accept the circumstances, we accept the outcome is out of our control, then we can walk through it without sinning and pleasing God through it. Um, but also, um, he can give you a way of escape uh, by providentially intervening and changing the circumstances. So also, um, to motivate people with hope, you have to think biblically about hope. And so, um, first, the uh, specific situation, you have to think biblically about it. What is the biblical nature of this? What's the biblical cause? What's the biblical solution? And then think about the possibilities for good in the situation. Uh, consider the divine resources you have. It's hope-giving to know that you have the power of the Holy Spirit. You have the Word of God. And also that um, God is working in the believer. God is always working. And He will finish uh, what He started. And then talking through God's character, um, that you're new. Everything changes after the cross. Um, things that were driving you and guiding you. Um, you're new. You can be driven and guided by new things. And then the counselee's words, they have to think biblically. Um, they've probably been saying a long time, I can't, I can't, I can't. And you have to help them with, um, I haven't, or I won't. Those, those kinds of changes of speaking. And then you can give hope in recalling uh, God's past faithfulness with the counselee. If you can pull out specific things that have happened in the past where God has seen them through, and it's like the psalmists do so often, recounting God's faithfulness to um, either them individually or to the nation of Israel. And then you can give biblical examples of um, recalling God's faithfulness, like Joseph and Genesis went through so much, but God's faithfulness was there all the way. Um, Naomi in the book of Ruth, God's faithfulness and purpose was there. And then you can give examples from your own life of God's faithfulness or other, other people's lives that the counselee may be aware of. And then true hope is the result of true salvation. 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Um, there are people 
that you will talk with that profess faith and they are not born-again Christians. They have not been converted. And that explains some of the, some of the, the problem. Um, very rarely do I get to the place where that's where we conclude. Um, but, um, you know, some people just have a profession of faith and they're going through a difficult trial, sometimes not even their fault. But there are, be aware, there are people that are not converted that, that you're counseling. Um, true hope is um, eternally minded, not, uh, not uh, temporally minded, not this life minded, but the end of life minded and eternally minded. And true hope focuses on God's larger plan. Um, so Paul's imprisonment in the governor's palace was for the purpose of the progress of the gospel um, rather than about Paul's circumstances. If it was all about Paul's circumstances, he'd be hopeless. But he was um, looking at God's larger plan and God's purpose in his life. And then true hope is realistic about sin and suffering. Um, for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so you will not grow weary and lose heart. This is a fallen world with sin and suffering. And then true hope also is connected to a diligent and accurate study of God's word. Um, often help is delayed for people and things take so much longer because you've got to help people come up to speed on just basic theology. You're working with people who they, they don't understand biblical confession. They've, they've, uh, they've never had a pattern in their, in their relationships of if they sin, going to God and then going to the other person and confessing sin and, and um, uh, seeking the person's forgiveness. And so they have to be trained in these areas. Um, Psalm 119.49, remember the word to your servant in which you have made hope. So as you show them that um, the word is sufficient for all these things and train them accurately um, in the word of God, um, it can bring hope. And then hope is a matter of the will and faith, and it's based on knowledge. Um, it's based on what we know from the word of God. So you've got to help them get there. Um, this is what I want you to put your hope in, in the Word of God. And I want to teach you about it. And they need that knowledge there. Hebrews 11.1, 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So we look at not our circumstances, but we look at the Word of God. And then this is something that's so helpful for people, is that hope needs to be renewed daily. It's not something, you know, you you're, you have a biblical hope, and then it's you know it's the next day it's automatically there. It does need to be renewed daily. And then, as part of this hope, be careful not to overpromise. Um, provide biblically based expectations of good, not just sheer optimism. Um, hope, give them hope, and promise things that only God and what God has promised. Like he's promised to conform them into the image of Christ. Um, he has promised eternal reward, those kinds of things. Um, he's promised he'll do beyond what you ask or imagine in his timing. So we promise those kinds of things, only what he's promised. Um, we shouldn't promise um, restored health. We shouldn't restore, promise wealth or other temporal blessings. God can do all these things. Uh, and marriage counseling, um, we can promise that they can please God through the, the trial. Let's say marital separation. You can please God through this. You can grow in Christ-likeness. But you can't promise God will restore your marriage. Um, if both people turn to Christ, the marriage will be restored. Okay, the third of the four eyes that we're going to do is inventory. And sometimes people call this investigate. Um, the definition you have in your notes is promote biblical change by gathering enough of the right kinds of information. So inventory is information or data gathering to accurately understand the counselee and the problem that they've brought to you with the scriptural references there for data gathering. Okay, so in your... Uh, notes. There's an attachment that says personal data inventory. 
attachment one. At the back of your notes, attachment one. So this is a sample of one. This is something that at our counseling center everyone fills out and we get a chance to look it over before we meet with the counselee. Um, what I typically do is I look at some key things and then I tell them during the next week, I'll read this very thoroughly, I'll come back and I'll, I, I may have some questions for you. So this is completed by the counselee to get numerous routine questions taken care of. Um, can you imagine the time it would take and the, and the energy it would take for every counselee to ask all these questions? So it's just very, very um, efficient and time-saving, and it helps you to eliminate missing very important information about the counselee because you're not going to ask all these questions of every counselee, so you're going to miss some important information potentially. Um, you can see it includes topics like personal identification, marriage and family situation, health, as you flip through it, spiritual issues, some things for women, uh, what they think their problems are, a checklist there, and then just a little bit of a narrative um, of what they think their problems are, what they would like um, done for them. Uh, for me, people who I don't know that come to the counseling center, everyone needs to do this. Um, in my church, I don't even think about this. You know, it's for me, it's people I know, I don't use it. People that I don't know, I do use it. Um, but there are some people that want to be thorough, and they use this for everybody. So it can be helpful. It's, it's your call. Um, the next uh, attachment you have there is attachment two. And that's something that I use that I call, I call it an organizer. Um, now, um, if I'm counseling one person, I don't need this. I can just use notes. If I'm counseling multiple people at IBCD, multiple people in my church, I do need this. Um, what, for me, what it's a way of doing is as I'm meeting week after week and I'm taking notes, from that week, I take the most important notes and I put it on here. And then the next week, the most important notes. So if I'm looking for something, I'm not flipping through pages of notes and don't know what week that went on. Um, so um, if you know I wrote down the year they were saved or something, I capture that on here. Or if there's a particular thing they're misplacing their hope in, um, I capture it here. Um, uh, how many kids they have, I put here. And people in my church, I, I basically know that kind of thing. But people that I don't know are coming to a counseling center. Um, I, I need this thing to, to keep me organized when there's multiple counselees. But it can help if you're just, if you're just dealing with one. Um, and any of these forms, if you want to email me, I can send you them electronically. And you can use them or you can go in and change them to what you think should be, be on these forms. I'd be glad to do that for you. Okay, as part of data gathering, um, determining if the counselee is a believer is the most important thing. Uh, so often we start with asking for their uh, testimony of faith and see if they have a proper knowledge of the gospel. Um, there can be correct answers, though, and then there's this uh, incorrect pattern of life. So um, we can't know for sure the person's heart. Um, but true believers do bear fruit. There's change, and there's an element of loyalty to God. However, a believer can backslide, and God gave us in his grace and mercy the story of King David to know that a real believer um, can backslide. So you can't say to the person, um, you know, you can't judge definitively um, that I know your heart, um, but there are a few cases you can get to where you can say, I'm really concerned about um, that you have cause to have a lack of assurance of your faith. Um, I'm very careful with that. It's something I do way down the road in counseling. It's not something I do very often. Um, it's usually someone who's a professing believer, and they just got a lot of struggles, and I leave it at that. And we, we help them to a degree. Sometimes we help people. It's, it's miraculous what God does. Sometimes just help them to a degree. Sometimes they walk away sad. But once in a while, you get to a place where you really, the way they think of the gospel, the fruit in their life, um, those kinds of things that you have to get to the point where you say you lack cause to be assured 
of your faith. And the book of 1 John is a book intended to give believers assurance of their faith, and the times reading and discussing that is, is helpful. Uh, okay. Um, all right. So in inventory, they're going to come in with a presenting problem. It might not be the real problem, and it's very, very seldom the underlying heart issue that, that you want to get to. Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Or James 4, 1, what's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures or your inner sinful desires that wage war in your members? So very seldom are they going to come in and say, my presenting problem is this heart issue between me and God. I honor myself, and it manifests in this way, and I know what I need to do is repent of that and honor Christ instead of honoring myself. So they also might have the problem incorrectly identified. Um, They might have the thinking of uh, um, uh, a disease kind of thinking, like uh, their drunkenness is the disease of alcoholism. Um, There's... there's also secular labels that have been put on people, like major depressive disorder, which can be a label that describes a set of symptoms, but often veils the root problem. Um, kind of gives a false hope, oh, I understand what's wrong with me, but it veils the issue between them and the Lord. And uh, I'm not saying that uh, depression can't be caused by physical causes. It can, but sometimes labels, they come in with labels, and it's veiled, it's veiled the solution. Okay, also in inventory, ask effective and appropriate questions. Ask open-ended questions, not questions where you just get, uh-huh, yes, no. But you know, ask questions like, tell me about such and such, or explain to me what went on. And ask reporter-like questions, who, what, where, when, um, and how. Um, try to be careful in your questioning, not to be accusatory, but gracious in, in the questioning. And then... Uh, take notes so that as they're answering, you're not having to um, stop them to get more clarification. You can let them talk through, and then with your notes, come back and ask questions. Also, um, don't jump to conclusions, but be tentative with people. Um, if you have a, if you have sort of a theory, then uh, ask more questions to test out that theory. Um, Proverbs 18.13, he who gives an answer before he hears it is folly and shame to him. And sometimes I'll tell people, this is my theory about what's going on. I don't know, but this is my theory. And I want you to weigh in on you. Is that your theory now, too? You know, Do you think we're on the right track? Um, if you jump to conclusions, um, you, you'll lose the involvement you tried to gain. You'll lose the trust and relationship. Um, if you have wrong assumptions. So, for example, um, not every problem is sin. Some problems have physical causes. And if you just start assuming laziness, slothfulness in people, and there's some underlying medical condition, you're going to lose involvement. They're just going to say, this person does not get my struggle. This person doesn't have the experience to understand that there's physical issues and spiritual issues, uh, that sort of thing. Um, and then there's times um, in the questioning that a person may need to be stabilized to get effective questioning done, effective uh, dialogue. Maybe someone has a severe lack of sleep or they come in and they've been drinking, that sort of thing. You, you don't counsel them. You, you get them stabilized and then um, um, come back together for counseling. And then common questions to be answered. I have these in your notes. Um, what has happened um, or is happening in the person's life. So, you know, we want to talk about circumstances, how they've been treated, physical problems, that sort of thing. And then how is the person um, responding to what's happening um, or has happened in their life? How are they responding behaviorally and emotionally? And then what are the person's thoughts and beliefs and assumptions, presuppositions about what's going on? Um, so, in other words, how are they interpreting uh, what's happening, and then what are the person's thoughts about God, other people, life in general, themselves, um, in relationship to what's going on? Uh, a key question I ask all the time is: at the right timing, you just get a sense of the right timing. Is um, 
How does God view you in this? And then when they answer that, based on that, how do you view God? And then that's a, that's a big area to begin to clear up from Scripture. The truth about how God views them and how, how they should view God in a way of grace, a gospel of grace. Okay, questioning involves draw out what's going on in the person's heart. The problem's not the problem. The heart is the problem. Is a good phrase that a friend of mine uses to help you remember that. So you want to get to the, the target, which is the heart. What is this person living for? Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. So what do they love, trust, or fear more than God? And I'll often linger on this question and uh, maybe even write it down for them to discuss. But what do they, what do they trust love and fear more than God and talk to them about how these words in the Bible are reserved for God as far as your ultimate trust and love and fear and these words because they're reserved for God these are really worship words and that gives you the depth of the problem that there's wrong worship we're worshiping and serving some other entity rather than um, Christ And then in your notes, I believe I have these uh, examples of heart problems. Uh, I like to use the word misplaced hope most often. There's lots of words. What do they crave? Idolatry. Um, idols of the heart. But I think misplaced hope is a nice place to start with people. So there's, there's all these kinds of things. I have one document where I was collecting from counseling and collecting from people's writings. All of these that I could find. And it found nearly a hundred that people are saying, you know, I'm seeing or common. Um, so also along this lines of um, the person's heart is um, where does their identity and their worth and their righteousness come from? Um, if their identity is in their work and their work's not going well, they're going to sink spiritually. Um, if their identity is, and I'm beloved by God, I'm a Christian, um, I'm in the family of God, God uh, has imputed to me the righteousness of Christ, um, then, their, I, then their spiritual life won't go way up when they're performing well and way down when they're not. Way up in pride um, because they're performing well or way down in a false humility um, because they feel like they don't have worth. And so you want to help people with how can Jesus be the central focus instead of these things. Luke 14.26 says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So sometimes I'll have a long discussion with them about this. You know, what does this mean? Certainly doesn't mean literally hate family. But by comparison to the importance of Jesus in your life, um, this exaggerated language to make a point is used. And... Um, also, you can comfort them in that this is a progressive thing that happens in all of our lives, right? Before you're saved, Jesus is not more important than anything. You get saved, Jesus is very important, but he's competing with all these other important things to you. But in time, he rises up and rises up and rises up, becomes more of your hope, um, uh, more what you trust, um, more who you love. Um, so they, they do need to make the shift, repent of putting other things, ultimately their hope, um, but at the same time, it is a progressive thing that happens in the life of a believer. In your notes, I have a, a excellent resource. Uh, David Pallison wrote a book uh, many years ago called Seeing with New Eyes. Um, that is in your notes, right? Okay. So chapter 7 in there is called X-Ray Questions. I have personally taken those questions, typed them up into a handout, and any complicated counseling case, I give them those to take home to, to fill out. And you can see patterns in there of, of misplaced hope. And I, I'm not sure if it's in uh, this part or tonight's part, but um, um, we don't just dwell on where is the misplaced hope. We need to well on the person who is their hope. And so that's one of the hardest things to do in counseling is to 
talk about Christ and put sin aside. Let's talk about Christ, who he is, what he's done, why he's to be honored, um, what he did on the cross, his view of, of his sheep, that sort of thing. All right. Uh, halo data is a term that's been around, uh, used in the church uh, since the J. Adams day. Uh, what it means is nonverbal data. I have a little bit of this in your notes. It's talking about facial expressions, body language, whether a couple sitting next to each other holding hands or whether they're apart, um, the physical appearance of the person. Genesis 4, 6, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance uh, fell? Countenance fell. Um, and then sometimes uh, halo data can be uh, uh, really helpful in that they'll spark a question. So you have a couple sitting there, and neither one can see each other's faces. One of them answers, the other one rolls their eyes. You know there's, you know there's a problem here, right? You're not getting good data. You're getting partial data. And so you can say, uh, how do you feel about that? Do you agree with that? What's your side of the, what's your side of the story regarding that um, and then something called uh, paralinguistic communication is how it's said. So part of data gathering is not just what's said, but how said. Uh, is it said gently or is it said screaming? You know, paralistic communication. And then um, in your notes are these words here, this acronym that Wayne Mack came up with, preached. And so these are just different categories where you can talk about the whole person instead of just the problem the person's bringing you. Um, so, for example, uh, physical, you know, you can talk about sleep and exercise and illness and those kinds of things. And then resources and relationships. Um, is this a true believer that has the Holy Spirit? Um, what is their knowledge of God's word? Is there church leadership available that can come in and be part of this? Um, and then emotional, um, are their feelings negatively influencing the way they think and the way they make decisions? Uh, their actions, uh, what are they doing, what are they not doing that's according to God's word or ag against God's word. And then conceptual, what do they believe, what do they believe about God, about themselves, about the circumstances. And, whoops. and then historical, um, look for patterns. Um, I like to talk about with most anybody with serious problems is historical provocations in their life, how they may have been mistreated. Um, instead of being discipled as a child, how they were pushed in the wrong direction, uh, those kinds of things. And then desire, uh, what emotions and actions and things are being driven by desire? Um, what is craved by this person? What, what, is, what is their temptations? And in your notes, I have uh, the book, Counseling, How to Counsel Biblically. In that book, there's uh, 15 pages or so on just this right here to give you um, just a, a broader view of all the different kind of questions to kind of talk about the whole person. And then on uh, um, getting near the end of uh, the data gathering, you want to hear from other parties. Um, Proverbs 18:17. the first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. So often you won't get the whole story from the person you're counseling. Uh, the preference in marriage counseling is to have both people there so that you can get the whole story. Um, this allows hearing both sides. Very, very often, if I hear from uh, one party, I kind of get the idea of the problem. When I talk to the other party, I get the scope and the context. You know, I've done this. No, you've done this for five years, and it's not just that. It's this plus this. So you, you, you want them both there if, if possible. And then um, having them both there, they both get to hear data directly from the other person. Um, and then the teaching and counsel you give, they both, if you're giving it to one, the other one's getting it at the same time. And they're getting it in context rather than that person going home and saying, here's what he said, and kind of bolsters their, their, their position. Or just they didn't understand it, and so they're giving uh, bad counsel. Um, it's not always possible um, because of quarreling and because of the, just the hardness of heart. So, or a case where there's really an abuser, um, you're going to counsel them separately. Um, and then... Um, to hear from other parties, you talk to like a church leader who knows them, uh, a friend who knows them well, family members, that kind of thing. With the counseling fully knowing, wanting these people to come in and, 
and be part of the, the process. If only one spouse is willing to come in, um, try to still get data from that spouse. Uh, uh, call the spouse, send an email, write a little note home to the spouse and say, would you please come into counseling for the purpose of giving me insight about your spouse? And um, um, if... if uh, I might start with a note going home with the, the one spouse, and if they ignore that, I might call them and ask them to come in. But I'm promising that they're coming in for the purpose of giving insight about their spouse, and so if they do come in, I, I honor that. Um, sometimes, oftentimes, uh, they'll start asking questions, and they'll just naturally become part of the counseling process because they want that. And, and um, then that's great. We have them both in counseling, which is the better the better scenario. Um, you could gain passport. You know, they start saying, you know, you know what you're doing. Um, this is different than what I've heard. I feel like I can trust you. You're not what I thought. So they start engaging in the counseling process. And then finally, in the data gathering, you can use homework. Um, they can, you can ask them to write a journal so that you see what's going on all week instead of getting a snapshot of the, the hour that you're with them. Um, or something like data that they're going to write down what they do on a daily basis and you see their schedule. So there's homework you can give to get data. Um, last I, interpretation. The purpose of interpretation is to promote biblical change by analyzing and organizing the information from the inventory phase where you were data gathering to accurately identify the biblical nature and cause of the problem and to convincingly explain this to the counselee. So interpretation is what's the biblical nature and cause of this. Scriptural references are there for you. Um, so first thing we need to do is replace secular language with biblical language so we can find a biblical answer. Um, in your notes, I have these words, dysfunctional, uh, dysfunctional family. Um, um, so we might replace that with they didn't function in a biblical way. Uh, the love shown in 1 Corinthians 13 was what was not the experience. Or low self-esteem might be uh, they lack identity in, in Christ and the, and the gospel. Um, unmet needs, maybe uh, lust, um, maybe a heart that's demanding. Uh, workaholic could be um, desire to make a good showing, fear of man. Um, perfectionism could be works righteousness, um, gambling, drugs, alcohol, those kinds of things, addiction to these things, uh, a life of pleasing self, drunkard, deeds of the flesh. So you try to try to reinterpret these words so you know where those words are in the Bible, that you can go to the Bible to, to uh, diagnose this and then come up with a solution. Um, what biblical categories could be used to describe the person? Um, their spiritual condition. I have in your notes uh, these different biblical categories. You can see those there for yourself. Uh, one I want to add is uh, Matthew 7, 1 through 6. The first couple of verses puts them in a category whether they're self-righteous and judgmental or not. And then verses 3 to 5 um, is, do I have a person that if they sin, they're going to take responsibility for it? They're going to get the log out of their own eye? And then Matthew 6 moves on to um, throwing what's holy before dogs or pearls before swines. Do I have somebody who, no matter how compassionate, no matter how biblical, no matter how giving you are, they're going to attack you and, and um, trample on um, your graciousness? So you can kind of categorize what kind of person that you're, you're dealing with. And then what kind of insights does the Bible give for the problem? Um, so you're interpreting this. Well, first, first of all, you know right away Jesus said that sin comes from the heart. So um, you know that in everybody. It's coming from the heart. They may be terribly provoked and mistreated, but the response of sin is coming out of the heart. And then you want to start to draw conclusions and finalize your interpretation based on all the information that you've gathered. You might have to do further research, um, study scripture, um, go read a topical booklet on what you're studying, go talk to another counselor or pastor, but you're, you're trying to come to a final conclusion of your interpretation. Okay, we are right at the time, so I'm going to pray for us and then um, excuse you to dinner. 
Father in heaven, again, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for your sufficient word. We thank you for this work that's been done by men ahead of us to bring um, the elements of counseling into a format that they can be taught. And I pray for everyone here that they just walk away familiar that there is a counseling model and it involves eight eyes, familiar with the, uh, the, uh, the labels of uh, the elements of counseling like inventory, and investigation, those kinds of things, and give them a heart to learn more about this. And for those that are counseling a lot, help them. May this be a peace, Lord, that helps them just what they need as they go forward ministering to others. And we pray all this through Christ. Amen. Copyright 2015 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free audios are available at www.ibcd.org.